0: Good morning, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday the 26th of June. I'm Tom Tilly and you are?
1: And I am Jan Fran. Good morning.
0: We have some great news to start the show, don't we
2: Jan? We do. I can announce the host country of the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023, which will be Australia-New Zealand. Congratulations!
0: Yes, huge news. We're going to have the Women's World Cup here in I'm Australia, doing New crowd Zealand. Noises. It kind of reminds me of this moment.
2: The, the winner is Sydney. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: well.
1: Only people who are as old as we are in this moment will actually understand where that comes from. That was 1993.
0: Yeah, the Sydney Olympics announcement was huge. But this is massive. Maybe the next biggest thing since the Sydney Olympics is the Women's World Cup being played here in Australia in yeah. 2023. In a moment on the briefing, we're going to speak to Matilda's star striker, Haley Rasso.
3: Dreams can come true and... I think about these young kids who will now be able to come out to this World Cup, which is in Australia, and look at us as an inspiration of something that they want to do when they grow up.
0: Dreams can come true. That's how we're starting today's show.
1: I love that. I think it's worth starting it on some good news.
0: Because we're about to go to some bad news. Here are the other big stories of the day.
1: Yeah, sadly, the good news didn't last this morning. (laughs) Uh, We are starting with some pretty devastating news for Qantas workers.
4: Many of the 6,000 job losses we've announced today are people who have spent decades here. They're people we know personally. They are people that we know for a long time.
0: Qantas boss Alan Joyce there announcing another 6,000 jobs loss. That comes on top of the 2,000 jobs shed in March.
1: Yeah, and he says that there will maybe be more if the trans-Tasman bubble or any travel bubble really doesn't open soon. Um, there's 15,000 Qantas staff who've been stood down, half of whom are waiting on international travel to restart to actually be able to get back to work.
4: Around half of those stood down will be back flying domestically, we think, by the end of this calendar year. The remainder, mostly those supporting international flying, will return to work more slowly.
0: We all want to travel again, but I imagine those Qantas workers want us to travel more than anyone.
1: Yeah, and look, the really concerning thing is, experts have said this, that international travel might not resume normally until there's a vaccine, and we just don't know when that'll happen.
2: If you want to see us return to the uh, more eased restrictions, then it is important that you download the COVID Safe app. That is your ticket. Remember that, we were told it was our
0: ticket to freedom, turns out the covid safe app isn't working. The covid-19 app is not working as we hoped it would because too few people have downloaded it.
1: That was Queensland's health minister Stephen Miles there. More than 6.2 million people nationally have downloaded the app. So it's it's not a small amount, but in Victoria, New South Wales, South Australia and Tassie, it's actually yet to help authorities find a single contact that wasn't picked up just through the standard Tracing process.
2: I would liken it to the fact that if you want to go outside when the sun's shining, you've got to put sunscreen on. This is the same thing. Yeah, those words are sounding kind of hollow right now. It's
0: really disappointing that this isn't working. I think a lot of people put hope and faith and trust in this app that it would help us move forward.
1: Yeah, and we've got a situation in Victoria now where we're seeing cases in the double digits daily, so it'd be quite good to know that this app is functional.
0: Although, I guess the app was meant to help you reach out to people that you may be came in contact with, but didn't remember. But it turns out this outbreak is largely coming from small households. So those people will already know who they would have been in contact with in those moments. So
1: you don't really need it anyway in that situation? In
0: that situation, you don't. Anyway, I guess this is the whole experience of a pandemic. You learn more and more about the way the infection works and the best ways to target it.
1: And has the government done enough to save the music industry? That is the question this morning, because yesterday the PM announced a $250 million support package for the arts and music industry, and he gave a shout out to his favourite singer, Mark Vincent.
2: The thing I love about this sector is the passion about this sector. When Mark Vincent was on the call the other day, he just said, I just want to sing again, PM. And I want him to sing again too, and so does my mum,
1: by the way. I don't know who Mark Vincent is. I had to look on... him up. Did you? Yeah. He
2: won Australia's
0: Got Talent. He's a classical singer. He's a tenor. Okay. And he's from Sutherland, like ScoMo.
1: Right, and ScoMo likes him, and, and ScoMo's mum likes him. Yep. Good to know.
0: I wonder if you'll like him when you first listen to him.
1: I'll, I'll give him a go. I'll let you know.
0: <laughs> okay, so this support package announced yesterday, it involves 160 million in grants and $90 in loans for festival and event promoters, the film and TV industry and arts organisations. And there's quite a few question marks about this policy, so I'm going to put them right now to the Arts Minister, Paul Fletcher. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Undoubtedly, this will come as really welcome support for the industry, but they've been getting smashed for three months. It was late March when concert promoters were having to cancel events at really short notice. Uh, a lot of workers who are casuals and gig workers have struggled to get job keeper. Do you worry that this might have come too late for some people and some organisations in this sector?
4: Look, you're dead right that the arts and entertainment sector has been hit very hard by COVID-19 with performances cancelled, venues closed, gigs being lost. The arts companies, the promoters, they've chewed through a lot of money just yeah. um, sustaining themselves over the past few months. So that's why a real focus of this package is the $75 million in grants under what we're calling the RISE fund, plus $90 million in concessional loans. And the idea is that that goes towards the cost of getting new shows, getting new festivals, getting new events. This is about how do we get activity restarted.
0: I wanna focus on one element you mentioned there, the $90 million of debt. So it's a $250 million package, but as you pointed out, $90 million of that is debt. Why saddle these struggling organizations and artists with more debt? Why wasn't that just more funding?
4: What we've got here is a mix of grants and concessional loans, and the loans will be highly concessional in terms of interest rate, in terms of no repayment required for 12 months and other things. And what we envisage is we'll see um, promoters, arts companies, event organisers come forward with their proposals and they might very well end up with a mix of some grant funding and some concessional loan, as well as their own money that that they're putting in. Remember that ordinarily uh, these new shows, new events are funded through uh, essentially the capital that the promoter, that the arts company has mm. available to them. Uh, and this is essentially about uh, helping them replace what they don't have access to at the moment.
0: So, Minister, you've now got some big-name artists coming out like Tina Arena, Jimmy Barnes, a whole bunch of others saying that JobKeeper needs to be extended past September. Because you've offered this big package of $250 million, Uh, Does that mean you won't be extending JobKeeper for people in this sector?
4: In the ordinary course of business in the arts and entertainment sector, you're planning many months ahead. So we're coming out with this now so that uh, people in the sector can, as they start to plan their shows, they know that they've got this source they can go to. It's about building confidence. But
0: September's not far away. So can you give us an indication of what's going to happen with JobKeeper for these these artists and, and all the people that work behind the scenes?
4: Look, as the Prime Minister and Treasurer have made clear, they've got a process underway uh, in relation to reviewing JobKeeper. So I'll leave it to them to make any comment about that.
0: Minister, great to speak to you. Thanks for joining us on the briefing. Thanks indeed. Yeah, so no commitment to extend JobKeeper there. That will mount up on the government, the pressure to do that, I think, over the next few months.
1: Yeah, I don't think people realise just how massive the cultural and creative industry is. I think it contributed something like around $110 billion to Australia's economy. This was in 2016, 17, so very recently. So it's a massive industry and there are people who just have no lifeline in this moment.
0: Absolutely. So it's good to see the government announce something. We'll see how it works and, you know, if it can really help people get back up and running in the arts sector. Jan, speak to you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Annika's jumping into the studio in just a moment as we speak to a very excited Matilda.
5: The countdown is on. Australia has won the bid for the Women's World Cup, beating Colombia for the 2023 tournament.
1: This is it. Everything we've been working for. A World Cup on home soil. We
3: believe that in 2023, an Australian New Zealand FIFA Women's World Cup will bring us all together again. Sam. Wow!
2: Wow! Wow! I can announce the host country... Of the FIFA Women's World Cup 2023, Australia, New Zealand. Congratulations.
0: Yes, it's very exciting. The 37 members of the FIFA Council cast their votes during an online meeting overnight meaning Australia and New Zealand will host 32 teams because the event was expanded from the 2014 format seen last time in 2019.
5: It will be the first World Cup hosted across two football confederations, Asia and Oceania, which will see matches in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Launceston, Perth and Newcastle. Across the ditch in New Zealand, there'll also be action in Auckland, Hamilton and Dunedin, just to name a few, if the borders are open, that is.
0: Yeah, it's going to be super exciting for spectators and it's interesting how it's playing out for the men's game as well, because they've had uh, major sponsors stepping aside. That competition is really struggling. So the question is, could this actually bring up the men's game?
5: Yeah, the Matildas and the W League have built up a huge following in Australia in the past 10 years, and now they'll be able to vie for the World Cup at home, which feels like a really big reward for what they've done for the game in the last decade.
0: So let's go to Matilda's star striker, Haley Rasso. Haley, thank you so much for joining us. How excited are you right now?
5: Yeah, it's absolutely
3: amazing. I think we put out such a great bid. Um, Everybody really got on side and got on board with us and it's just a really incredible achievement and we're all so excited about it.
5: Hayley, we hear a lot about Hometown Advantage and having an Aussie crowd behind you. When you're out there on the pitch, what's it like when you can hear those sort of screams of Aussie, Aussie, Aussie compared to being in another country?
3: Yeah, it's really uh, such a game-changer you have the whole of the Australian crowd behind you. You also have your friends and family uh, in the stands, which makes it kind of that extra special feeling. So um, the home advantage is is a massive plus, and it will be a real boost for us knowing that the whole of Australia is there cheering us on and behind us.
0: Yeah, Haley, there's so much love for the Matildas. Um, you know, such a popular team and deservedly so because of your form on the pitch. Um, we're now looking at a you know a World Cup here on home soil. There's even talk that the women's game is helping support the men's game that's going through a tough time. Is that a conversation you've heard as well?
3: Um, we haven't really heard that too much, but I think at this point in time, it's it's a real boost for women's football and women's sport in general. And it's kind of like if we can pave the way and and have this World Cup on uh, in Australia, it will really help boost and grow the game in in all aspects.
5: Now, Haley, it's still a few years away twenty twenty three. What does the training sort of look like for the next few years? When do you sort of ramp it up, or right from now are you sort of focusing on that that winning that World Cup this far out?
3: I think, um, especially with the news now, it's it's an exciting thought, and we're we're thinking ahead, but we kind of have to stay in the moment and remember that you know we'll have a number of camps before that. Um, we have the Olympics, which is a major tournament uh, before that too. And I think we'll kind of go to the Olympics and, and prepare and really put our strategy and game plan into place and hopefully do really well there, which will then um, lead us into and give us a bit of a boost for when we do have this World Cup on home soil.
0: Haley, what what message do you hope that today's announcement sends to, say, a young five or six-year-old girl who's considering taking her football really seriously?
3: I think it just shows that dreams can come true and I think about these young uh, kids who look up to us or who will now be able to come out to this World Cup which is in Australia and and watch us play and I hope that with the way we play and, and how dedicated we are to the game that they can see that and kind of have a dream and look at us as an inspiration of something that they want to do when they grow up.
0: So that was Matilda's star striker, Hayley Rasso, looking forward to the World Cup on home soil. Uh, Let's get more into the backstory of how this came about. And also, I guess this unusual relationship where we've got the women's game potentially helping um, the men's game in the football scene here in Australia. Francis Leach is a sports commentator who's also done some work with the FFA. Francis, thanks for joining us.
5: Can you just tell us how significant this is for Australia?
2: Well, it's significant for the game of football, but it's also significant for women's sport in general and also for the country because this particular tournament is in its breakout phase. I was lucky enough to be in France for the Women's World Cup last year and covered that from start to finish and, and watched the momentum in the tournament grow in terms of uh, an interest and level of viewership and audience. Also, uh, for turnout of games, and you just get the sense that women's football is is on the crest of a wave. And with the Matildas also being one of the best teams in the world, uh, its economic economic impact is bound to be significant. And the level of interest in women's football will go through the roof, which can only be a good thing for women's sport generally across the community, and uh, and also for 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 women's uh, wealth and health, welfare and health in wider communities. Because for so long, our sports infrastructure and the way that we've uh, managed our sport at community level has been gendered. If you think about all those council facilities that are out there that for decades, for generations were purely built for men, uh, that's going to change and it's already changing and the arrival of a Women's World Cup in Australia will see that accelerate.
0: And why do you think it's this particular sport that is really booming in the women's
2: space compared, you know, relative to other sports? Well, I think there are a number of factors. One, it is the global game. It is the most popular sport in the world. And there's always been more people playing this game than any other. But there have been a few drivers. The success of women's football in the United States, the biggest commercial market in the world, has certainly been significant. Uh, It is the sport of choice at college level for women. uh, And the the American women's football team is uh, the most popular American national team uh, going after they've uh, won the World Cup a couple of times. Uh, It was unbelievable to be at the final Lyon, uh, in uh, July of last year watching uh, an audience of 60,000 enjoy the game, but predominantly women, Amer- American women and their daughters were there. Right. A completely different cohort of people that would usually attend a sporting event like that. And women are now starting to be able to make a living, a professional living, out of playing the sport more and more. So yeah, it's a, it's a sport on the crest of a wave and as a World Cup, we will put on a magnificent uh, World Cup because we already have infrastructure in place and we know how to manage uh, major events, it'll be, I think, a spectacular success.
5: Francis, back in 2010, we were all pretty shocked to learn about some of the dodgy lobbying that went on for the World Cup. And Australia alone spent $46 million and all we got was one single vote for that 2022 FIFA Men's World Cup. How much did that pretty bad experience set Australia back and make it difficult to get officials and the government on board for this bid?
2: significant there's no doubt about that 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 whole process has been exposed as a sham FIFA has tried to reform itself and there's still a long way to go but you the bid last night that we saw was transparent so you knew exactly which delegate was voting for which bid I think hosting a World Cup is a huge boost in terms of uh, the economic impact it will have in terms of visitors if and when we can travel again but also for the sport itself it accelerates the success of the sport in this country and uh, uh, that's what I think governments look at it has a huge both social and economic impact in terms of uh, women's sport which is something that is certainly top of the agenda in the sports world a lot of catch-up being done to make sure that women's sport has parity with men's sport this will accelerate that
0: so we won't have seen this before in Australia Francis uh, a football world cup it'll be an absolute first and we're sharing it with New Zealand Um, what will it look like how big will these games be what sort of
2: crowds do you expect to be turning out yeah, it is the it's the first time we've got the uh, World Cup. That's true. We have hosted s- some tournaments of uh, not comparable stature, but near uh, with the Asian Cup, where the Socceroos won in two thousand and fifteen, and that was a huge success. It's not quite on the same scale as a men's World Cup, so that I think is a good thing because it's a much more accessible tournament. And it has a real community feel about it. Uh, the cultural mix is superb as well. People coming from all over the world to to enjoy the game. Uh, they're very special times,
5: Francis. Can you tell us a little bit about the bidding process? How early do we sort of get our pitch together? And who was our biggest competition at this time?
2: Yeah, you start pretty much two or three years ahead of where we are today. And uh, it's a long, arduous process. You have to make sure that your infrastructure uh, footprint is correct. It meets FIFA standards. You've got to get all the state and federal governments uh, involved and their support. You can't do it without them. You have to make sure that you've got commercial partners who are in it for the long haul as well. It all comes together in the last six to eight months when you put in your technical report. Uh, Once that technical report goes in, then it gets assessed by the FIFA Technical Committee, and that means looking really you put it all down on paper in a bid book it literally is a book I've seen it with my own eyes and it, it outlines everything you plan to do your entire infrastructure spend your logistics of moving teams around where they're going to stay uh, how you're going to make the tournament tick and you have to get it right and then you just have to wait and see how the numbers fall on the vote it's a it's a very nerve-wracking time once your bid book goes in your homework's done it's a bit like waiting for your atar to come back
0: hey <laughs> <I>, Francis <laughs> (laughs) Um, The sort of narrative with women's professional sport has been that they've been, I guess, using the men's game, say the AFL, for example, to help build a women's game so that it becomes, um, you know, a greater commercial entity. But are we almost seeing potentially a reverse here where you may have women's football because of this this World Cup win – actually propping up the men's league which has been struggling in Australia.
2: Oh absolutely Tom I think that is the case uh, at this particular stage. It'll give the sport generally a huge kick along and remind people of its relevance in the global uh, global spheres that the game is truly global but the Matildas have been Australia's most popular team for a number of years now most popular national team. You just have to look at the numbers they get for viewership when they're playing games when they had those tournaments in the last few years here against Brazil and Chile and the numbers of people watching on television they have a huge footprint in terms of people who are interested in watching them Um, they've got a great uh, uh, I guess you know demographic spread across both um, men increasingly men and women and girls uh, who want to watch them so their appeal is significant and I think that is something that uh, the football has in the last Five years or so had to rely on because the Matildas have been their most saleable brand. The Socceroos were that for a very long time, and they still are. They still have, uh, if you look at this sort of brand value, they're still very significant. they you know, it's a, it's a brand that has held up. But the Matildas have gone past them in terms of re- recognition. Sam Kerr uh, is, you know, considered one of the best players in the world, and she's kind of carried that along. But look, let's face it: women's sport has been holding up Australian sport for years. If you look at the, the spread of Olympic gold medals in the last 50 years, it's predominantly women. It's a story that we don't like to tell so much because we watch a lot of male football codes in the wintertime. But women's sport has been the driver of Australian sporting success for a long time.
0: Well, great to get your passion and insight on this one, Francis, on, on this historic day for women's sport and women's football in particular. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Annika.
0: That was Francis Leach giving us the background on the successful bid to host the Women's Football World Cup here in Australia. Exciting times, Annika.
5: Yeah, it'll be great. I might have to get along to one of those games. And the good thing is they will be all across Australia, not just in the major capital cities too.
0: Super exciting. All right, that is it for today's podcast. Tomorrow, we have a special weekend briefing for you. Um, we had a chat with Julie Bishop earlier in the week and we asked her specifically about the idea of a, a wax it, which is like a Western Australian Brexit. But there were so many... Actually, more interesting questions to ask her about her life post politics. So, enjoy that full length interview with Julie Bishop and Jan Fran tomorrow on the weekend briefing. You have a beautiful weekend. Bye.
1: A podcast one production.